Before we consider Genesis chapter 38 together, I want to simply remind you of a well-known verse in the Apostle Paul's writings. He writing to young Timothy in the faith, um, that pastor in the church at Ephesus who he took under his wing and calls his true son or true child in the faith. As he's writing to Timothy to encourage him and to bolster his confidence uh, in the Scriptures, he writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, a passage that many of you in this room will know and some of you will have memorized. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, why do I tell you that? Why do I tell you what I know many of you in this room already believe, and that is that we are about to read together God's Word. Well, the focus of 2 Timothy 3.16 is to assure Timothy that all Scripture is inspired. Every single bit of it is God's Word, even a passage like Genesis 38. Uh, a passage that, as I read it, will make you blush a little and your reader of the text blush a little. Its subject matter is sordid, and it is not easy to get through. And you might read through a text like this and, and think to yourself, why? Why, why, is, why is this here? Why wasn't this expunged from the record? Um, why did not the editor of the book of Genesis just cut out uh, this particular section in the record? And I think that by the end of our time together today, you'll say, I'm so glad he kept this text in. I'm so glad that the Lord breathed out these words to us, that he carried along his writers of old by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us exactly what it is that we need. Because we need this text. Here in Genesis chapter 38. So as we approach it, let your mind embrace this reality. That this is God speaking to you his word. Let's look to it. Genesis chapter 38 verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Odin, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, 
Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and that she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of this place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we trust you. And we know that you have given us the least stroke and the smallest dot of the scriptures as intended for our edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. Even 
the story of Judah and Tamar. We would ask that you would now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, appropriate this passage to those of us here in this room and to use its truthfulness in a gracious, impacting way that we might be changed from having listened to the living word of the living God. Come and meet us, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hard to read a passage like that and not ask the question, now why is this here again? Why is Genesis 38 in the Bible? What is this passage intending to communicate to us? If you're visiting with us for the very first time this morning, I just want to assure you I don't choose these passages simply because I want to get a kick or a grin out of somebody. We are committed to preaching through books of the Bible. And we believe that it's one of the best ways to deal with the corpus of the Scripture, to come to uncomfortable passages of the Scripture, and to lean into those passages to learn what it is that God would have us know so that He sets the agenda more than any preacher or any person within the context of the Scriptures. I was disappointed this week sometimes you know, wanting to listen to a sermon or two from a preacher that I really enjoyed and noticed that they preached on Genesis 37 and then preached on Genesis 39. <laughs> that happened more than once this week. And it did have the fleeting thought of, well, he is a much better preacher than I am, and he is much smarter than I am. Maybe the better part of wisdom would be to leave Genesis 38 to Ben Griffith, who's coming very soon. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to the poor man. I wouldn't, wouldn't do that to him. Genesis 38, why is this passage here? Now, some of you are asking that question because you're thinking to yourself, weren't we talking about Joseph? I think I remember something about Joseph, and I don't see anything about Joseph in Genesis 38. Didn't we leave him on his way to Egypt, now enslaved with the Ishmaelites, being given over to Potiphar's house? You are correct. That is exactly where Genesis 37 ends. And then in Genesis 38, like it would be natural, we start talking about Judah. What in the world is going on here? Why are we talking about Judah when we are in the midst of the narrative and in some ways maybe holding our breath to find out what actually happens with Joseph and we have to wait until we get to Genesis 39 to figure out what is really going on with Joseph. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my friends on this passage, he says, this is, this is sort of like a meanwhile back at the ranch moment in the scriptures. It's a, it's a panning away from the story of Joseph to tell you, oh, by the way, while everything goes down in Egypt, this stuff is happening with Judah. And it's a pretty big deal. In fact, the whole, not an overstatement, the whole of redemptive history hangs on Genesis 38. Like, like everything that we believe and have come to treasure about the gospel of Jesus Christ hangs on Genesis 38. That's why it's here in the scriptures. It is because actually the whole of the book of Genesis, if you've been with us in this series, you know that it's really about, well, it's all about seeds. 
Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God is speaking to Adam and Eve post the fall. And he says to them in those, that first telling of the gospel that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the, the head of the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And of course, we, we know as we have studied together that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, what will ultimately take place on the cross. That's the picture and the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. But between Genesis 3.15 and the opening of the book of Matthew, there's a lot of seeds. There are seeds of the serpent and there are seeds of the woman that are actually running all the way through the book of Genesis. In fact, we could argue that the book of Genesis is giving to us a seed theology beginning with Cain and with Abel, um, extending with, with, with Jacob and Esau, uh, continuing with Isaac and, and Ishmael, and, and now Joseph and his brothers. We see this conflict between seeds, between families that are happening all the way through the book of, of Genesis. And it's teaching us that we should read the book of Genesis in light of the revelation of Genesis 3.15, which is why the seed of Judah... It's really important to the unfolding of the gospel. What we see here is a concern that there's salacious, almost gratuitous material in Genesis 38, but what God sees is the unfolding of redemption. And yes, it's messy at times. It's, it's certainly not the, you know, Nick at night, Donna Reed version this is not Dick Van Dyke. This is not Ozzie and Harriet. This is, um, well, this is Judah and Tamar. It's, it's, more, it's more along the line of, of a daytime soap opera than a Nickelodeon 1950 special. It's probably closer to reality of the human fallen condition, and it is certainly very close to the reality of redemption and the gospel that we all know and love and cherish here at Cornerstone. There's so many things that we could say about this passage. I want to really just wrap your heart and your head around two pieces of this that I think, I think really get to the heart of what's being communicated in Genesis 38. And the two, the two teachings, the two points are this. This passage teaches us that we reap what we sow. That we reap what it is we sow. And here in that word sow, seed. That we reap what we, we sow. But ultimately the gospel teaches us that we reap what God sows. We reap what God sows. That's, that's ultimately what this passage teaches us. We reap what we sow, but in an ultimate sense, we reap what, what God sows. And that's what we're going to lean into as we look at Genesis 38 together. And so have that in mind as we explore these, well, these characters. The, the first of this, these characters is Judah. In the previous chapter, we... we we spend some time thinking about Judah because you remember if, if you were with us in Genesis 37, he was the one who masterminded the plan and executed the plan for the disposal of Joseph. <laughs> He's the one who came up with taking the personal property of the coat of many colors and ripping it up and dipping it in the goat's blood and sending it back and deceiving his father. That was all Judah. 
in the midst of that chapter. And now we see that Judah is breaking away from his brothers. Isn't that interesting? He breaks away from his brothers. He breaks away from his family. And he goes and he spends some time with a friend named Hira, the Adullamite that's mentioned in this passage. Some of you will hear the cave of Adullam, which comes later in the, the writings of Samuel, which David actually has to hide in from Saul. Same place, same, same position. And in fact, uh, the place of Adullam in, in Canaan becomes the place um, where Judah itself is given that land once they take the land in the book of Joshua. It's very interesting. Judah is there. He's meeting this Adullamite, Hira. And um, we already know that he's going to get in trouble. And the reason we know that is that we're told that he sees a pretty young Canaanite woman and he decides to make her his wife. Now because you've read closely the book of Genesis, you know that this is a no-no. We don't do this. We don't intermix between God's covenant people and the pagan idolaters of the land of Canaan. Remember when Abraham was looking for his own son, Isaac, a wife, he sent Eleazar on a wife-hunting mission. And when he did, he gave him one instruction. It had nothing to do with what number he was on the Enneagram or what personality type he had or what his, his nature of whether he was introverted or extroverted or what kind of dowry was involved. There's none of that instruction. What it actually was is Genesis 24, 3, these words. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's the only instruction that Abraham gave to Eleazar who was looking for Isaac a wife. Well, likewise, Jacob um, is, is when, he, when Isaac begins to, to send him out for looking for a wife, he echoes the words of his father Abraham in Genesis 28.1. Do not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Maybe you'll remember that Esau took a wife from the Canaanite women and his mother complained about it the whole time after it happened. Judah knew better than to take a wife from the Canaanites, but in that moment, and what's described in the text is that he's not making decisions along spiritual lines. He's making decisions along lustful lines. And notice the way it's described. Verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived a son. Now, in other places in the Scripture where marriage and weddings are described in, in, a, in a much more civil manner, shall we say, we'll speak of a woman becoming a man's wife. The indication in this text is that she became his wife in a manner that was sexual. In fact, the language mirrors that of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. She saw and she took. It's the same language of Pharaoh towards Sarah in Genesis 12. He saw her and he took her. It's the same language of Shechem in Genesis 34 when he sexually defiled Dinah. He saw her and he took her. We can see right from the very beginning that Judah has left the reservation, spiritually speaking. He's not just separated out from his brothers. He's not just separated out from his family. He is, in, in like manner here, describing a turning away from the promises and instructions of God. 
Now, why was it so important that the people of God not marry a Canaanite? Was this some incipient racism that's built into the text? No, that's not it at all. This is a spiritual matter. The Bible is, is consistent in this from cover to cover to speak about marriage and husbands and wives and the searching for a spouse as that which is to be done within the parameters of the Lord. Paul, when he speaks to the church at Corinth, he tells them, do not be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions about remarriage after a divorce, he's talking about the freedom to remarry when there has been a biblical divorce. And he says, but let her marry only in the Lord. In like manner here in Genesis chapter 38, we see God emphasizing the distinctiveness of God's people to be yoked with God's people in the commitments of the most important relationship among humanity, the relationship of husband and wife. There's a sanctity that the Lord is speaking to us from the example, bad as it is, in the life of Judah in this passage. But we just don't see Judah in this passage. We see the fruit that comes from the the mixing in of the idolatry. The the marrying himself and yoking himself with the things of the world, being driven by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. There's There's a seed that comes forth from this action. What's that seed? Ur and Onan. They're really the only two that we learn anything about. Shelah in this passage is is merely a a, a kind of pawn used that's never received. And we don't really know anything about him specifically. But Ur and Onan we do and what we know is not good. This son Ur looking for a wife. His father arranges for him to marry Tamar. It appears by all evidences in the passage to be a very brief marriage. We, we get no input with regards to how long they were married, any aspect of their marriage. All we hear is that Ur sinned in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. It's a grievous statement of judgment. We don't even know what Ur did. Now, when you name your son Ur, <laughs> bad things are bound to happen, I guess. But there is a reality within this text of A wickedness, a wickedness that must have been so grievous that the Lord himself with regards to his intervention in judgment stepped in and killed Ur. Now just put that in perspective. The only persons up to this point in the text that that God has ever spoken of as killing is Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the first individuals that the scripture ever speaks of with regards to directly intervening. And I would argue the reason for why the significance of the severity of the judgment is the significance both of the sin and of redemption. Because the story of redemption with these men hang in the balance. Now it doesn't get any better with Onan, does it? Here is that very unusual moment in the text where uh, those of you who are brothers, and you think of the potential 
of you dying and the brother that's next to you marrying your wife and having children with her. And you just go, no, 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 I don't want to go there. That leveret marriage that's here being described and is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 25, specifically among the people of Israel, was actually an act of ministry and service to the widow and a way of establishing the legacy of the brother who had died. Do you see what Onan is being called on here is not merely to care for and to take in Tamar and, and, and to bring her into a part of his household. He is trying to establish Ur's household and the legacy of the firstborn son who is the son of Judah who is going to carry this tribe into the future. This is a significant birth. It was Onan's responsibility to ensure the legacy and the continuation, the succession of his brother's inheritance. You see, Ur was the firstborn son. He was to receive a firstborn son's inheritance. Without a firstborn son's inheritance, who would it have gone to? Onan and Onan's son, which is exactly why Onan doesn't want to comply. Onan is willing in some sense of the term to play a part, but he's unwilling to do his responsibility. And because of it, God steps in and he kills him. Uh, again, for the same reasons I think that we can speak of with regards to, to Ur in this passage, is that the seed, the redemptive seed, is in crisis. And we have men who are unwilling to be responsible in the carrying forward covenantally of what God has called and charged them to do. Now you can see by this point why Judah is, is getting a little nervous. Um, he's lost two sons by Tamar now. Um, he's beginning to wonder, is she slipping something into their drink as they eat at night? And uh, is this woman cursed in some way, shape, or form? Or I'm down now to one son. Shelah, and because he's young, praise the Lord, I am going to buy time before we give Shelah to Tamar. Now, of course, the text makes it very clear he had no intention of ever giving Shelah to Tamar. And Tamar draws that conclusion as well as Shelah gets old and um, is never given to Tamar. And Tamar is sent back home to live with her father and for him to take care of her. And so Tamar, as we see in the text, gets creative. In verses 12 to 26, Tamar realizes, okay, my father-in-law's uh, not going to ensure uh, my marriage to Shelah and the continuation of the legacy of his firstborn son in and through me, the, pri the progenitress of, of, of this child. I am to be the one who leads in this. She begins to take matters into her own hands. She hears... That Judah is going to leave and head to Timnah during the, the sheep shearing. Now, if you're unfamiliar, and, and, and I would expect that you'd be unfamiliar with the tradition of, the, of sheep shearing in the ancient Near East during this time period. I, is there an expert among us? Anyway? Probably not. Probably not on this particular issue. But I will tell you this. It was a little bit like harvest time. It was a great party. It was known for its uh, drunkenness. It was known for its debauchery, which is probably why Tamar believes that her plot will work. 
She probably also knows something of the character of this man Judah. As we saw at the very beginning of Genesis 38, this is a man who lives by the eyes and doesn't live by the eye of faith. She leaves and unbeknownst to Judah, dons herself as what is described later in the text as a cultic prostitute. Now if that's an unfamiliar notion... The Canaanites, a pagan country, pagan people, worshiping idols, had temples that dotted their areas from which they engaged in sexual relations as a spiritual act of service to the idol. Those sexual relations were often utilized as a means by which to bring about fertility or or fruitfulness. Uh, in, the, in the context of the land or in the context of one's life. The, these were likely fertility gods that would be served. She dresses up like one and stands outside this place named a name, which is on the way to Timnah. And Judah does not recognize her at all. The disguise works. And he falls uh, right in line with the plan that she has conceived. And as he approaches her and asks for her services, she responds and asks, what will you give me? And he says, I'll give you a goat. Interesting. Of course, the theme of the goat has been coming through the past previous passages. It was Judah himself who used a goat to deceive his father. And it's here that he's offering a goat as a means of payment. But She wants more than that. She wants a pledge. She wants to be sure that he's going to cash in, so to speak, on on his deal. And so she says, give me a pledge. And so he gives her his driver's license and his social security card and a credit card just in case, which is exactly what these forms of identification were in the ancient Near East. His seal, it was the way in which he was known. His staff, which was unique to him. And his cord, uh, the means by which he would be identified in a community. She was very shrewd. She knew exactly what it was that she was, she was after. She, she was looking for assurances and confirmation. And she wanted to be able to track this man down. Interestingly, this town where she has stationed herself outside of a name, is a town that literally in the Hebrew means to open one's eyes. And it's there where Judah is as blind as a bat. He can't see a thing. He has no idea what is going on. And yet it's in that moment, in the place of a name, that will ultimately lead to his eyes being opened. Much to his chagrin. The next thing we know in the text, isn't it, is that Tamar is, um, is pregnant. Three months pregnant, in fact. And, and remarkably, we have the strongest statement by Judah in, in the, whole of the whole of Genesis 38. He, he hears the testimony. He's not seen her. There's no trial. There's no exploration. It's just bring her out and let her be burned. And we think to ourselves, we're getting a glimpse into this man's character. A man who would use the services of a prostitute three months earlier would burn her for her immorality in the context of his own family. You would have expected patience. You would have expected compassion. You might have expected conviction. 
Some commentators argue, and I think there's a, there's a line of, of credibility to this, to this argument, that he was, he was ready to get rid of Tamar. Tamar, maybe he had laid the blame of the death of his first two sons at her feet. She was, after all, the one in whom they were married to when they died. And, and Shelah, the, the possibility of his third son, the pressure of not upholding the Leverite marriage custom and law must have been weighing on his conscience. This is a way for him to get completely under, out from under any of the guilt of the situation. Regardless of Judah's motivation, what we see is that Tamar has the upper hand. As she's being brought forward in order to be burned, she brings forward the, the forms of identification. And, and very, very similarly to what we saw in Genesis 37, the cord and the staff and the seal is set before him. And she says, to whoever these are, let them be recognized. You wonder in that moment, did, 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 did Judah go back in his mind to, to remember when he had sent the personal possession of Joseph back to his father and had asked, do you recognize this as your sons? That Judah in the midst of this is now the deceiver, the one who has now been deceived. In some ways, he in this passage is reaping what it is that he's sown. In a different way than, than Ur and Onan reaped it, but, but a reaping nonetheless, a reaping that, that must have felt in the moment like death, an exposure of incredible guilt. He's actually concerned, isn't he, as he sends the goat back by Hira the Adolamite and they can't find her. He's concerned that they continue to ask lest he be laughed at. Oh, I wonder what the scene is now. This must have been the worst possible outcome that he could have imagined. As Judah's own heart sort of drops in his stomach, doesn't it remind you is of the moment where Nathan the prophet comes to King David? After King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrated the murder of Uriah, and then he comes to David as, as now a, a, a great amount of time has gone by to address the sin that is David's, and he tells him a parable, and he says, listen, there's a, there's a, there's a poor man who has one lamb and a rich man who has many flocks, and the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and he sacrifices it in order to be able to feed his, his guests, and he takes advantage of him, and he exploits him, and David rises up almost like Judah and says, that man should be killed. And Nathan says, you are that man. This is Judah's you are that man moment. He is forced into the painful recognition of his own sin and his own guilt. And if you begin to follow the biblical narrative on Judah from this point forward, what you begin to find out is that this is his turning point. Do you know it's, it's always these moments, right? In our lives... What we do with these moments, when our hand is in the cookie jar and, and someone exposes that, how we cover it how, how, or how we callous to it or how we 
admit to it and confess, whether we humble ourselves in the sight of others, we seek for repentance and we turn from our wicked ways and we cast our cares on the mercy and the grace of God, or we put up blinders and ignore it and act like nothing happened and we run away. It's these moments. And what we find in the life of Judah by the end of our time together is that it's the end of the book of Genesis. It's, believe it or not, it's this Judah who when Joseph is asking that Benjamin stay behind while all the other brothers go back home after they've come and be fed in Egypt, it's Judah who says, let me stay in Benjamin's place because he feared for Benjamin's life. What a change happened in Judah's life. And it was from this what we might call severe mercy that the Lord was beginning to change the heart of Judah, but he was doing something even more than that, you see. You know, there in, inside of Tamar was, well, something akin to a Jacob and Esau. Twins uh, reappearing now in the narrative of Genesis. We even have the, the note of the red string, which reminds us just a little bit of the, the reddishness of Esau, doesn't it? These twins that are, are clearly in some sort of wrestling match inside of, of Tamar as, as the hand reaches out of what would be named Zerah. And then the hand goes back in and Perez uh, comes out. And Perez is the one who ultimately is named the breach. Or we might even term it the breakthrough. Both translations are appropriate for Perez's name. The breakthrough. Finally, the seed of Judah. The seed from which the legacy of faith will extend, as we read earlier in our text, at the end of the book of Ruth. When Ruth, who is marrying Boaz in what is a leveret marriage... Him, the kinsman redeemer, coming in to rescue the line and, and see a succession beyond that of a husband who has died and a father who is no more. It is, it, it is Tamar and it is Perez who is praised in the midst of that final prayer in the book of Ruth that may your child which you are conceiving, Obed, be like the praise of Perez and Tamar. Do you see in the history of redemption, the people of God didn't look at Genesis 38 and think, oh, my relatives. Now, there may have been something of that. And I'm sure that there is appropriately so something of that. But instead they saw, look at God using these relatives. Look at the mercy and the grace of God using these relatives. That this Perez would be invoked as Obed is born in the same line as Perez. And Jesse is born in the same line as Perez. And King David is born in the same line as Perez. Do you see, this, my friends, is a breakthrough. This is a breakthrough. This is the redemptive line of Judah. This is why we say today that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. 
It is not for the sexual exploits and deception of Judah. It's from God who in the midst of this passage, you see, is not held captive by the evil and wicked seeds that men sow and reap. He is a God who along the way is seeding his own seed. And we, by his grace, reap what he has sown. The opening of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, you know whose name we read? We read the name Tamar. One of only five women mentioned in all of Jesus' genealogy. And isn't it fascinating? It's not, it's not Sarah. It's not Rebecca. It's Tamar. This morally conflicted moment of dressing like a prostitute to seduce your father-in-law, of which the Lord uses. Well, to redeem you and me. You do realize this is, this is your history. And this is mine. Perez is our, is our great, great, great grandfather. And Tamar is our, is our spiritual great, great, great grandmother. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that this seed that we are now by God's grace, a part of, led to the seed that ultimately crushed the head of the serpent. Friends, I want you to take comfort. And I also want you to take warning. In the warning in this passage is God takes sin seriously. Ur and Onan in this passage are laid low and destroyed by the very hand of God for wickedness. A standing in the way of the progress of redemption. And of whatever manner of sin that's behind the few verses devoted to them. And the fact of the matter is, the wages of sin is death, we're told. And that each of us sinners justly deserve the judgment of God. This passage teaches us that. To not be cavalier with sin. To not look it over as if, it's, as if it's a small thing. God doesn't look at it that way. He gave his only son for it. When you trivialize sin, you trivialize the payment for the payment of that sin. Which is Jesus' own blood. He's saying don't trivialize sin. Own it. Come, come clean. And in fact, if you're one of his the best thing that can happen to you if you are in hidden and besetting sin is that you would have a Judah moment. That would be the kindness of God. To, to bring to surface the things which are, which are uniting us to the Canaanites and not to the covenant and the glorious promises of redemption. That would be God's kindness. Do you see in here, Judah deserved as much as Ur and as much as Onan to receive the cutting down power of the judgment of God. But God had mercy on him. And God will have mercy on you if you call in faith upon him. If you come clean with the recognitions of those sins that you've coddled and hold, hold dear. He will have mercy on you. And that's the comfort of this passage. 
You may look at your family, you may look at your own life, and you think, well, now you have no idea what's going on in, in my family right now. And it may near enough be of a daughter-in-law deceiving a father-in-law in a moment such as Genesis 38, and you think to yourself, there's no way that could ever be redeemed. I have a story for you. I have a story for you. Just as you should not trivialize sin and the reality of its grievousness before God, do not trivialize the strength and the might of the grace of God to, to triumph over all of our sins. There is no dark narrative of which he cannot turn into the gospel light. Today, in Christ Jesus, by grace, may he be pleased to do that with us. Father in heaven, we would ask you to be merciful. To be merciful in the severe mercy that may be needed for some of us in this room to reveal those things which need to be revealed. And Lord, to be merciful to those of us in this room who have fallen asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking, and who are looking far more like the world than we are like Jesus. Father, change that today and begin to change it more day by day as you portion out your grace to us and you reveal the power of Jesus to transform lives. Lord, hear the petition of this prayer and according to your will, answer it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.